Hi there, and welcome to another Dishcast. It's my last day up here in Provincetown, actually, and it's a gorgeous day. Before I head back to our nation's capital, and I'm just absorbing it all. It's a little, you know, it's a little happy, sad, because I'm here where Bowie was with me all the time, and it's very hard to get away from the memories of her everywhere. And I just picked up her ashes today, and that's always a little hard. Anyway, I have a guest today. We have a guest today. I've been wanting to talk to who I've only come to really know through reading him over the last few years. Leo Sapir is a writer and a researcher. He's currently a fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a frequent contributor to City Journal, particularly on issues of gender identity and public policy, specifically the treatment of children with gender dysphoria. And the reason I noticed his writing is that it, it, it's, a, it's a rare thing. It, it's a calm, painstaking, really extraordinary, well-researched attempt to understand what we know and what we don't know. And what we don't know is quite a lot. But he struck me as someone who was in the center here, someone who was attempting to find a way through the thicket of issues that we have, especially with respect to children. And I know some of you think I go on about this too much. Well, you don't have to listen. <laughs> if you're bored by this, you cannot listen. I do think it is an incredibly important topic in public policy right now. And I, I want us to better understand where, where, what, it, what we're talking about, essentially. And I think there's a lot of talking past one another and a lot of misunderstandings. of what. So I hope to take things slowly today and talk with Lior through these, these questions and specifically what, what we are to do in terms of public policy at the end of it. Just a reminder that coming up, we have some amazing people coming on. Ian Baruma, an old friend, whose new book, The Collaborators, Three Stories of Deception and Survival in World War II, is coming out. The august philosopher Martha Nussbaum on her book, Justice for Animals, and the young reactionary, I don't think even he would object to that term, Spencer Claven, who's wrote How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. Also, every lefty's favorite New York Times columnist. We have David Brooks and Pamela Paul, just, just to work their nerves a little extra, both coming in to talk about very different things. But Lior, thank you very much for coming and welcome to the Dishcast. Thank you, Andrew, for having me on. Tell me, and this is how I always begin these things, and I, I worry I'm becoming a sort of armchair psychologist, but, but where, were you, where were you born and, 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 and where did you grow up? I was born in Rochester, Minnesota. My father, who was Israeli, was getting his postdoctorate at the Mayo Clinic there. And we moved to Israel, to a kibbutz in Israel, a year later, and lived there for three years. Actually, it was my father's kibbutz where he grew up. And then my father was offered a job at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois. So we moved to Chicago and lived there for seven years. And when I was 11, my family moved back to Israel, settled on a different kibbutz this time in the north. I like to tell people it's, it's exactly halfway between Nazareth and Armageddon. And, and that's where I finished my primary K-12 education. Well, <laughs> finished is a strong word. I never actually graduated high school. It's actually quite common for teenagers on a kibbutz not to graduate high school. Partly that's because of the, you know, the socialist ethos that emphasizes 
labor and social equality, and that's suspicious of academics. And partly it's because for, you know, for all Jewish Israeli boys, you face a minimum of three years of military service after high school. So getting into college and getting good grades in order to get into college is just not, it's not a factor. It's not, not among your concerns. I was then drafted into the Israeli army. I served as a squad commander in a combat unit for three years. And, you know, the custom for Israelis when you finish the army is to work and save money for a year and then use that money to travel around the world. And so that's what I did. I actually moved to Seattle for, for about eight months, nine months. I worked in a hospital there. And I traveled in Southeast Asia, Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, Eastern Europe, Mexico. It was a glorious period of my life. It's a period for which I'll always be nostalgic. Um, and I actually think it would be really beneficial for Americans, for young Americans, and for the country as a whole to have some kind of compulsory, na compulsory national service and, and for young people to travel after high school before they embark on, you know, their college education and their professional careers. But that's a topic for another conversation. Yeah. So tell me, you were toggling back and forth between America and a kibbutz in Israel. What was the cultural shock for a kid going from one of those worlds to another? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I moved to the kibbutz permanently when I was 11. So, you okay. know, right on the cusp of puberty, when, when you start to develop deeper friendships, I wasn't really, I didn't have a, a circle of, of, you know, of friends who I would call, you know, I didn't have deep friendships when I was 10 living in living in Skokie, Illinois, let's put it that way. But, right, you but know, living yeah. in Skokie, Illinois, in America, no, your father, your parents were not presumably on a kibbutz in America. They were right. living as, as, as regular citizens in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an industrial town, right? That's so, right. So, so I'm, I'm just fascinated by this. And, and your father, presumably he, you were an American citizen, and did you also have Israeli citizenship? Yes, I'm a dual citizen. My two brothers are dual citizens, both my parents. My father is since deceased, but, but both my parents are dual citizens. And, you know, when we moved to the kibbutz, it, it was culture shock, not just because I didn't really know the language, but also because I'm, you know, on a kibbutz, you have age groups, age cohorts, and kibbutz is a pretty small community. And so I had, you know, 14, 15 kids in my age cohort who all knew each other from birth. <laughs> you know, right. they, were, they were friends. The friends in the group are, are, they're like brothers and sisters, right? And so to break into that circle was a little challenging at first, but once you're in it, you're in it. And you, you belong to it. And, and that's really an experience that I think is probably irreplaceable. It's hard to find something like that outside of the Israeli kibbutz, I would say. Just in terms of communitarian feel and the sense of being embedded in a community that cares about you. Or, you know, w within certain limits, of course. Cares sometimes too much. Right, I'm you know, sure. People yeah. have their noses in each other's business. And especially, you know, I, I was, so I grew up on a kibbutz at a time when the Israeli kibbutz movement was on the decline. Um, this was the 1990s when is the Israeli market was starting to become liberalized as a result primarily of a Supreme Court decision. And, and kibbutz life started to be less and less socialistic. You know, we still had a lot of collectivized aspects. We had a communal dining hall. Every, you know, we had, we pooled all of our salaries and you got a stipend in return. We shared cars. It was frowned upon if you, you know, if you had your own material possessions, things like that. But as I was growing up, these type, these norms started to fade. 
And were your parents particularly lefty in this way? I mean, that were they committed socialists? <laughs> were they committed socialists or committed Zionists? Obviously, their attachment to Israel was great enough that even though they were working in the United States, they, would, they decided to go back. So they're not, not classic emigrants or immigrants, rather. Right. So my, my mom is actually American, and she grew oh, okay. up in Seattle. Her family's from Seattle. She's very Zionist, always has been. And she had pretty left-leaning politics when it comes to economics, at least, for, for many, many years. My father, he was more, you know, kind of, he, he, he loved it in his bones. He grew up with it. He was definitely attached to the country, to the people, the language. He's actually a, a pretty famous songwriter in Israel. Oh. He wrote a, a couple famous songs. And, and so for him, you know, his attachment to Israel and to the kibbutz in particular was just more instinctive, I would say. Uh, whereas for my so, mom, it was a combination of, of the heart and the mind. What, so then presumably after this wonderful trip abroad and after you've done your duty, what did you decide to study? Where did you go? Um, so I decided to come back to Israel for my undergraduate education, primarily because it was free. In fact, it was more right. than free. Uh, my dad was a professor at the university that I ended up going to. And so not only did I get 0% tuition rate, but I also got a, I got a free board uh, and lodging. Yeah. <laughs> so I studied, you know, in Israel, college is a little different. You don't apply to the university as such. You apply to a major. And so I applied for the honors program and I got in. I had to redo my GED first because I never graduated high school and I had to take the SATs and I did really well. So that allowed me to apply to the honors program at the university. And I simultaneously started in law school because law, the, a law degree in Israel, you could do that as a BA rather than an MA. And I hated it. I hated law school. <laughs> and I decided after one year in law school in this dual degree program, I decided to switch to philosophy because that's really what I loved. And I also realized at the same time that I wanted to become an academic. I wanted to, to get a PhD and, and, to, and to read books and, and teach and do research for, for, for the rest of my life. And that's, that's the, the career that I embarked upon. When I graduated from Haifa University, I reunited with the person who was my girlfriend for a year at Haifa and had since moved back to Boston. And, and so I moved to Boston in 2000, 2010. And then we spent a year in New York. We spent a year living in India, believe it or not, in Bangalore, wow. where I, I taught at, a, at the National Law School there. I taught for a year. And then I started a PhD program in political science in Boston College. Okay, doke. Yep. I, when I graduated from that, I did a postdoc at Harvard, and, and that's where you and I met when you came to give a talk there. And then and I what was, yeah. what was the postdoc on? The postdoc was a, you know, it was a continuation of my research, which had focused on how the Obama administration and the federal courts had interpreted Title IX and the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution to require schools to redefine male and female. So this Ooh. was, you know, was very topical at the time. Actually, I finished my comprehensive examinations the very same week that the Obama administration Department of Education handed down pretty much out of the blue, this dear colleague letter on transgender students. And I found it interesting because not only did the Department of Education fail to clarify, to explain what it meant by transgender, why sex is, as it put it, a stereotype, what gender identity is, how schools are supposed to distinguish between students who are sincerely expressing a different sex and, and students who are pretending. It did none of those things. 
But I think the other really interesting aspect of that Dear Colleague letter was that, you know, the Office for Civil Rights said, this is nothing new. We're not doing anything new. We're just following what the federal courts have always said Title IX requires. And then when you look at the, at the federal court case they cite, that court says, this is nothing new. We're just following what the Office for Civil Rights has long required. So I found it really interesting, and I, I wanted to use this as a lens through which we can get, get, gain a better understanding of how American government works, how the policy process works, especially mm. when it comes to thorny civil rights issues that tend to be insulated almost by their very nature. They tend to be insulated from, from uh, public deliberation and the democratic process. Yes, yeah, so a dear colleague letter that dramatically shifts national policy. You would think in a democracy there would be a process by which one would come to such a conclusion, but no. In this particular case, because of the inheritance of Title IX and what sex means, you can reinterpret and redefine that in ways that are really quite novel that you can then insist on not. But let's, let's, let's start from the very basics, Liar. what When we say transgender, what do we mean or what is meant currently by that word? You know, it's a great question, Andrew. And I think part of the problem is that there is no single definition. I mean, if you read some academic literature written by people in transgender studies departments, um, they will say openly, transgender is an evolving term with contradictory definitions. Whereas as one very notable transgender scholar puts it, uh, it's a term that, that has philosophical and generational tensions. Uh, you know, one, sus one suspects understatement. You know, I, I, it, it, it's, it evolved, I think, historically out of the term transsexual, which, which used to mean an adult, almost always an adult male, who undertook medical, physical steps to change his body to make himself appear as a woman. We can get into why people used to do that, and some still do, of course. But the term transgender really emerged in the 1990s and became popularized in the 2000s and 2010s. And it came to encompass a much broader range of experiences. So that now if you look at how a, a wide range of social institutions, including you know, organizations like the American Psychological Association, including school boards, including departments of education, including hospitals, DEI offices, if you, if, you, if you look at how they define transgender, they define it as, as they put it, a situation in which a person's gender identity, meaning their core feelings or core conception of being male, female, or some other category, that their gender identity is different from, they don't even say sex, they say the sex that they were assigned at birth. And when you think about that definition, a person whose gender identity is different from the sex they were assigned at birth, it's, of course, loaded with metaphysical assumptions that are profoundly contested, right? And we can talk about those if you want, but the point is, let's, yeah, go ahead. Let's talk about just the human experience sure. that some people seem to grow up and, and, and in their heads, in their consciousness, just understand themselves to be one sex. And when they look at their body, it is that of another sex. And that conflict is, of course, a really hard conflict. It's not an easy thing to reconcile. But it does seem that if you were to describe it in the vaguest terms imaginable, that this is a real experience, 
that it happens to a very small, but nonetheless not completely trivial number of people. And that historically, I mean, there was a lot of uh, persecution, but there was. it's also kind of remarkable how throughout history you can see uh, some people passing as, as men passing as women and some women passing as men in ways that you would expect in previous generations. And then, of course, at some point in the 20th century, the possibility of actually changing your actual genitals to better and your, your if necessary, your, your upper body to, to better mimic or better copy the sex that you feel evolved. Of course, you can appear in public in a dress and present yourself as a woman and no one would ever know or ask what's happening underneath. But this was, but, but understand me, this was about actually, and the idea of that was to, to, to ameliorate the distress that people were feeling when they had such a disjunction between their brain and their body. Now, is that a, is, I'm trying to be as, use layman's language. That is how trans people I've known and have met have explained it to me. It makes sense to me. And the reason I believe them, I don't, this, I don't see why people would make something like that up. And because it, it feels very much to me as a gay person, the kind of thing I knew about myself, that really there was no other way to determine whether it was true or not. Yeah. So tell me, how would you respond to those rough yeah. definitions? Okay, so first of all, I think we need to distinguish between gender dysphoria, which is a relatively new term. It used to be called gender identity disorder on the one hand, and let's call it transgender identity on the other hand. And these two things obviously overlap a lot, but they're not, they're not the same thing. Transgender. So it's possible to be, to, to, to believe you're the sex of a, your brain is, you, you believe you're a different sex than you are, and for it not to be a source of distress at all. In fact, you, 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 you feel fine about that. Well, I mean, even if it is distressing, that doesn't necessarily mean that your distress rises to, you know, clinical levels that it that it const- right. that, that it's diagnosable as as gender dysphoria. But given how, the, given the new definition of transgender, which I mentioned earlier, you know, it's possible to lump in a wide variety of, let's say, attitudes towards sex and gender, towards the body, towards social norms associated with being male and female, male or female. So, just to give you an example. One of the fastest growing categories, especially among young women, is non-binary. Non-binary people don't necessarily have to have gender dysphoria. They could, they could be you know, declaring themselves non-binary as a protest against what they would regard as gender being a social system. That doesn't necessarily mean that they have some severe distress associated with being in a female body or a male body, although some probably do. So with regard to gender dysphoria, I think your characterization is probably more aligned with that, meaning there are some people who go through life, meaning for whom it's not just a passing phase. They go through life with this visceral experience of feeling very, very, well, let's just say alienated from their bodies. They, they may feel viscerally that they were born in the wrong body. There's a kind of a dualistic metaphysics there that, that's nevertheless very tangible. It's not, it's not necessarily abstract for them. And for those for those people, this begins quite young, and continues their whole life. Well, that's where we have to be very careful, because if you look at the at the sum of research over many many decades, what you notice is that there are three types, or I should say subtypes, of gender dysphoria. The first subtype is the adult transsexual, 
these once again are mostly men in their 40s who used to, uh, you know, traditionally men in their 40s would transition. There's a, a, an association, according to some scholars, between that and autogynephilia, so erotic attraction to the image of oneself as a woman. Although that's, of course, very controversial, but nevertheless, that's, that's the, uh, one of the theories. And so that's one, one subtype. A second subtype, which was, you know, has been known for, for quite a few decades, is what's known as childhood onset or early onset gender dysphoria. And this describes mostly young boys, highly effeminate, who start experiencing or exhibiting, I should say, behaviors, feelings of, associated with the opposite sex at a very early age. We're talking, you know, even as young as toddlerhood. And, you know, decades of research have shown that these kids are almost always grow up to be gay, not gender dysphoric slash transsexual. So one of the complications in, the, in, in saying that these people, you know, know who they are from a very early age and then go on to become transsexual adults is that the pathway has never really been determined. In other words, if you take a, a young boy who exhibits these experiences with these feelings um, and you had to bet money, would this boy grow up to be a gay man or a transsexual adult? You should bet that this boy is going to grow up to be a gay man, because in all likelihood that's going to happen. Meaning, it seems to be the case that gay boys and future transsexuals have indistinguishable experiences as young children. That's interesting to yeah. me. But it also implies that there is a group in that group who, who feel this and, and grow up to be transgender as well. I mean, to, to live their life as the opposite sex. That is the and this starts This starts quite right. young. And it's, it's, I'm, I'm, we can get into the distinction between that and, and effeminate uh, uh, gay boys, mm -hmm. but, but there is a sub, subpopulation here that's real, that has this experience, this vis what you call this visceral sense of being in the wrong body. And it's hard to distinguish who they are from gay kids at the very beginning, but nonetheless, they do exist over time, they will persist in this in this identification, and they will become adults, almost certainly in in changing their their legal sex. So again, I just want to be careful in in, in what I say here. That certain what you just described certainly is the hypothesis, and it's the hypothesis that drives the entire medical experimentation with puberty blockers that began in the Netherlands in the 1990s. Right, right. That that some of these kids, and of course, the difficulty then would be figuring out who, which ones. Right. Yeah. Some of these kids are going to grow up to be adult transsexuals, and it, they're going to be benefited by not going through puberty. By because once they go through puberty, a lot of the psychological distress is associated with physical characteristics that they don't like. And, and we'll, it'll, it's going to be extremely difficult, if not impossible, for them to ever pass as women, meaning to have to, to eliminate those, those male characteristics. So that's the hypothesis. But I don't know if, that, if that is the let's just take that mm -hmm. hypothesis sure. for a second. Sure. It's not a hypothesis that one hears laid out like that. The rationale mm -hmm. given for puberty blockers and then cross-sex hormones for gender dysphoric kids is that they will kill themselves, not that... We need to stop the the puberty because that will give them. Let's 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 be specific here. A, a, a little girl who wants to take testosterone before. Let's take it this way: a little boy who who wants to who thinks he's a girl and wants to be a woman, then it has his puberty blocked, as it were, arrested, and then 
at some point given cross-sex hormones. Because of that, because he doesn't experience the second burst of testosterone that puberty provides, he he misses that masculinization process. I mean, there's a masculinization masculinization process that occurs in the womb. There is various stages that, and there's then, but then there's this one, which is a big one. And and when you have a little female, a girl goes has that testosterone. I mean, with a little boy does not have that testosterone, you can prevent him developing broad shoulders the kind of masculinized testosterone facial features that occur, the strong jawline, the way in which men's and women's faces do actually differ, and that human beings have historically and throughout evolution been been sort of programmed to recognize male and female, we know. And so that if you grew up having gone through male puberty and you put a dress on and you put makeup on, it's almost every human tends to say, oh, that's that's not a real woman, That's 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 a dude. But if you can avoid that process in puberty, you can better pass as an adult. That's right. Now, that's, that's, an, that's something that we never hear explained, because I think there would be considerable concern about that, actually, in yes. terms that you are, you are changing the – you're having a, a health regimen in your, before puberty purely for cosmetic appearances as an adult. Yes. And, you know, you're, you're a fellow political theorist, so you know that, that sometimes to understand – modern society, it's best to go back to the origins, to the philosophers who laid the foundations. And I think the same is true for understanding the contemporary debates over pediatric gender transition. It's really important to go back and read the original papers published by the Dutch clinicians and researchers who laid the foundations and who really were were wrestling, I don't think very profoundly, but at least they tried to wrestle with some of these dilemmas that you just described. So just to give you an example, One of the things that they noticed is that, especially in males, adult males, as I said earlier, the effort to transition after puberty is almost always futile, meaning it's virtually impossible to get rid of all of your masculine features, and that makes passing very difficult, and it leaves a significant amount of dysphoria that's very difficult to do away with. And so if you look at the original Dutch papers, they say there very clearly, the purpose of starting kids on puberty blockers is to achieve better cosmetic outcomes in adulthood. They're not shy about saying it. Wow. You know, the other rationale that they state is that some of these kids experience short-term distress, anxiety, depression, things like that, and that puberty blockers, by pausing the onset of of physical changes, can alleviate some of that short-term distress. But I think it's what's really important, Andrew, is that from the beginning, puberty blockers were said to be a temporary pause button that does nothing more than allow a window of time for these kids to figure out whether to transition. In other words, puberty blockers were not envisioned as part of the transition process. They were envisioned as part of the diagnostic process. And the idea was to take, you know, as we said, you know, the, the Dutch clinicians said in their early research, the vast majority of these boys will grow out of it. Adolescence itself, puberty itself, appears to be a, a clarifying event in terms of their sexual identity development. And most will come out as gay. We have research showing that. However, if they cross the threshold into puberty and the distress doesn't go away, and especially if it intensifies, then they become candidates for puberty blockers. But even then, 
puberty blockers are still a diagnostic phase. It's still possible for them to, to go, get on the blocker and realize that actually they don't need to go through medical transition. The source of their distress was something else other than having, you know, a kind of a permanent lifelong, early version of a permanent lifelong transsexual identity. So, so the, the original rationales for, for early intervention were short-term mental health, help with short-term mental health problems, but the main rationale was to press pause on, on puberty and allow for, for more time to clarify what, what the next steps should be. Now, yeah, that's, what, that's, that's why the book is called Time to Think. That's right. And of course, when put like that, it seems completely reasonable. In fact, when puberty is on rushing and, and kids are in acute distress, why not give them a little bit more time, if you can, to figure this out? Let's, let's remind listeners, before these, the beginning of early intervention medically, what was the general approach to children who had this acute dysphoria? It was, it was as I understand it, counseling, therapy, and also what's called watchful waiting. In other words, if the kid is, and I think the words that was told to me, persistent, insistent, consistent, over a, period, a long period of time, then you took the diagnosis seriously. If not, then not. And that was, that was what I was told by trans activists about 10 years ago when, I, when they were reassuring me that the possibility of intervening with children would not be a problem because they would, there, was no, there would be absolutely clear which ones were trans and which ones were not. Now, what happened to change that? Yeah, uh, that's a, it, it's a very big question. Look, I, yes, the, the traditional approach to pre-pubertal children, again, primarily boys, with gender identity issues has been watchful waiting and as needed, psychological support, counseling, therapy, things like that, right? On the premise, again, verified by decades of empirical research that the vast majority of these kids will desist and come to terms with their sex, and in most cases also with the fact that they are same-sex attracted. But this um, therapy is not kind of, you must wear boys' clothes, you must play football, you can't put on makeup, right. you can't play with dolls. Right. It, it, it allows a full range That's of right. their own expression. That's right. I, ideal, right? Ideally, ideal. the, the parents and the therapist, every, you know, all authoritative adults in the child's life will allow for as much room for the child to express you know, gender difference, gen gender variant behavior. But I would, I, I would maybe qualify that a little bit and say, Children are very impressionable. You know, I have, mm -hmm. I have young kids. I can easily convince them of anything in a heartbeat. And, and so I think kids do need to understand that there are, you know, there are men and women, and men and women look and behave differently, like it or not. And, and so some boundaries, it seems to me, have to be in place in order just to avoid confusion, because the child can very easily be led to believe that if you wear a dress, that, that because, because women and not men wear dresses, therefore, if you wear a dress, you're a woman. That's a very, you know, for you and me, we can easily see through that. But for a young child, a four or five, six-year-old, that can be a very compelling argument. So, it's, so yes, it's important to support them and to allow them free range of, of expression, but not unlimited and, and with, with boundaries, and especially boundaries that, that clarify reality. That's really important. 
but what you're describing, you know, kind of actively telling the kid, you know, suppressing their 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 behavior actively, you know, forcing them to wear clothes they don't want to wear. You know, at the more extreme end of that, you're getting into what activists, I think, rightly call conversion therapy. Although in the context of of gender and, and sexual identity, I think that term is grossly misused. But there is something repressive about that, and there 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 can be something very unhealthy about that too, because kids do need to 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 push boundaries, and they do need to be creative, and a lot of that creativity kind of goes away as they become socialized. And that's not a bad thing. Yeah, I, I'm just trying to remember my own childhood in a way because I wasn't very gender. I had no gender dysphoria. I I, I felt fine as a little boy, but I was not typical for a little boy. Uh, certainly not like my brother. Certainly like many of the other boys in my elementary school, for example. Yeah. And I remember I wrote this in my book, Virtually Normal. Uh, I was uh, at one point I was so bad at football that I became such a liability that they agreed to let me just take that period off and in which case I would sit where the girls were and one of the girls turned around to me and said are you sure you're not a girl and it it, it, it really obviously I remember her saying it to this very day it got very deep into me mm. and my instinct was to say of course not no I'm not I'm not I also had been told what boys and girls were, and I knew roughly I could look at myself and see that I'm a boy, but I can easily see how that could, if, 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 if told, not asked, but told by authority figures for a very young age, gay boys could easily, little gay boys could easily interpret their feelings of affection for other boys or their, their reluctance to be involved in contact sports or other things that tend to be true of gay boys, prepubescent boys. I could, I could have been persuaded I was a girl. And if I hadn't, if I, if I certainly been told at the same time, being a boy or a girl is just something you pick at some point. And, and it's not something that is a fate, it's a choice. Then I think if I'd been asked to choose, I don't know what I would have chosen. I've asked several of my friends this too. I've just sort of out of curiosity. Yeah, and many of them said, "Yeah, I might, I might will have." Yeah, yeah. I, mean, uh, I, I felt like a girl. This is something I hear a lot from you know gay men and women who are over forty, especially because I think on when it comes to the transition in general, and especially the medicalization issue, there's a huge generational divide within. You know, I hate to use the word the LGBTQ movement. I know that you hate that too, because it's really a kind of a mishmash of lots of different political you attitudes. And... Among lesbians and gays and trans people, it's very easy yeah. to say that. Right. You know, I mean, right. and and a subsection of them will call themselves queer. A majority of them will not. Right. But but I don't. I've never seen a. Well, I know why the the term LGBTQIA plus has been invented. Right. And it's an ideological reason. But in we we don't have to engage in that ideology. We can actually talk about reality. And you're right. There is a big difference, although even so, the knowledge that most gay men and lesbians have of what's actually going on is very limited because, in fact, there is no LGBTE community as such. We've extremely keep to our own, both that's true of lesbians and gays as well, by and large. Mm -hmm. And so there is this, this, this question of what's actually happened, but it is also generational. So... So instead of watchful waiting, we have to make a decision at some point about whether we're going to allow these kids, and this is in the Dutch case, let's talk about the, the critical precedent here, 
we're going to we're going to make sure, as I understand the Dutch experiment, you can protocol make sure that these kids are suffering from no other mental health issues. In other words, that they are they are entirely about their gender dysphoria, their distress is entirely related to that. They're not having a fight with their parents. They're not. Then they don't. They're not conflicted about their own homosexuality. They don't have autism. There are things that are complicating this, right? And then give them the puberty blockers as a time to figure out if they, and back then they would then, if they put them on puberty blockers, they would, they would then put them on cross-sex hormones. Yeah, so let me just clarify before we get into the Dutch protocol, because I think it's fascinating. But before we get in, I just want to clarify one thing. Watchful waiting applied to children, not adolescents. I mean, in some, in some sense, it also applied to adolescents before the medical option was ever on the table, right? That was just kind of inevitable, or at least watchful waiting in, with respect to medicalization was, the, was de facto the norm until, until you reached adulthood. But what happened, and this was primarily an American invention in the 2010s, is that you had a, a small group of activist physicians and researchers here in the United States who said that watchful waiting for children, for prepubertal children, is itself a form of conversion therapy. And that when a child says he's trans, he knows who he is and you must affirm it, meaning you must agree that that boy really is a girl. And this, of course, this change in how we understand the etiology and expression of childhood gender dysphoria is driven by an ideological assumption that never has been proven, and I don't think can be proven, which is that every human is born with this innate gender identity, that, that, that this gender identity is different from one's, can be different from one's sex, and that it can be innately, intuitively, and infallibly known from as early as age two. This is the ideological assertion at the very bottom of American gender medicine and it, it underwrites the notion of the transgender child, which has become extremely popular, especially, I think, on the political left in recent years. Um, and again, it rests on an, uh, on an assumption that, that uh, is not scientific. It's, it's, it's just ideological. It's just posited. But look, I mean, to get to the Dutch to the Dutch. Well, you protocol, say it is posited, because yeah. it's yeah. kind of an important point in a mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. uh, it is posited that gender identity exists, right? Right. Like, you couldn't do a physical test, right? There's no biological test. But couldn't you say the same thing about homosexuality? You can't test it, but you can certainly see early indicators of it in behavior. It doesn't mean that we doubt that homosexuality exists. Why should we doubt that gender identity exists? Well, or does it only exist yeah. when you're out when it when it's in conflict with your own sex? Um, well, well, that certainly is one way to explain it, right? That the experience itself arises from a kind of abnormal human development. Um, uh, because when I try and ask myself, what does it feel like to mm. be a man? Mm. I, I, I get what happens to me is I either just don't have any sense of that, really. At least I'm not conscious of it all the time. Or I then think about various stereotypes associated with men. That that seems a, seems a little weird to describe when when I I don't believe that men should have those stereotypes mm -hmm. need to need to adhere to those stereotypes. So, but I can understand why if 
I had, I just was me and suddenly woke up one day in a woman's body. Why I would, why I would feel yeah. dysphoric. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a very interesting thought experiment, right? Look, I mean, I think that the, the concept of gender identity comes down to us from, uh, Stoller and Money. These were two sexologists in the 1960s. Money, of course, gained notoriety for his experiment with the, the Reamer twins, John Reamer, who, you know, sorry, David Reamer. This was a, a boy who had a botched circumcision and the parents took him to John Money and John Money said, you know, gender, the, the hypothesis was that gender, that humans have this kind of psychological experience of their sex. And that's what they call gender identity. It's just a, a, a psychological fact about yourself and that this gender identity is highly malleable. And so the instruction that he gave to the parents was you should raise this kid, that kid as a girl because it's just going to be easier for him, easier for you. And of course, that experiment failed miserably and tragically. He, didn't, he never came to terms with being a girl. He killed, killed himself. He committed suicide later in life. But doesn't that... 30s. Doesn't that mean he did have a firm gender identity as a male? Well, so what... And it was innate. Yeah. So, it so wasn't the, taught to him. Right. So, so the failure of that experiment led people in the medical and research community to hypothesize the, op the, op the opposite, to say, well, if gender identity is not plastic in this way, if it's not malleable in this way, then it must be innate. It must be and fixed and immutable. So in other words, they, they well, retained- it seems in, in this case, it was. Well, they retained the concept. Well, again, the, the, the Reamer experiment failed, right? Why? Well, it failed, because, it failed because he couldn't persuade himself that he was a woman. Exactly. But that implies to me that he had a very strong gender identity as a male, uh -huh. and the physical attempt to make him look like a woman never really succeeded. Or you could interpret that to mean that the whole concept of gender identity as it was used just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. That, that our experience of ourselves as men or women is fundamentally dependent on and derivative of our bodies. It, it, you know, you could have gone, the, the, the failure of that experiment, right? There was kind of a, a fork in the road. One way was to say, there's no such thing as gender identity as envisioned by the sexologists of the 1960s. The other way was to say, yes, there is such a thing as gender identity, but unlike what John Money hypothesized, it's actually innate, immutable, fixed, knowable from an early age, blah, 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 can't be changed. And that's, that's where... Well, uh, if, we that was the, if, if being a man was, that, was defined like that for, for, for this particular person, um, then why wouldn't gender identity that would be against your own also be... See, this is what I think this is where I don't or I, I, I'm not quite understanding. It seems to me that, that what the what that experiment proved is that sex and the identity around your sex is 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 too too powerful to be gainsaid by culture, the environment or even surgery. Right. Um, so that means that if if someone's expressing the fact that I am a man, when in fact they or are in a woman's body, then that's the same experience as as the person who was in, it may put into the reverse situation. I think you lost me at the end there. <laughs> it gets difficult because you, because these are experiences that are very hard to understand right. and to to put in one's head. But what I'm saying is that the 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 what that experiment seemed to show is that the sense of being a man is very deep. 
and very hard to get rid of. And there's nothing that anybody can outside do to change it, which would suggest that if you have those feelings but do have the body of a woman, that's also the same. It would, it would imply exactly that, some innate sense that you were a man or a woman. I, I, so now I understand what you're saying. I just, there's okay. no evidence for that. There's no evidence that, I mean, what you're, it sounds like what you're saying is that people can be born with the brain of the opposite sex or a gender soul of the opposite okay. sex, right? So, so here we're already kind of, you know, we're, okay. we're into the realm of either, either metaphysics or- I see or, what, you're, what you're saying yeah. is that this dude, this dude felt this way because he was a man. Right, right, right. <laughs> So, I, 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 I mean, understand, but I can now, now, now I understand what you're saying. So that, yeah. so that out of that, you had this nebulous concept of gender identity for people who were not simply reflecting what their sex was. Right, right. And so, you know, I, there are, I think if you were to ask, you know, the man on the street, so to speak, what they think about this concept of gender identity and what makes a person trans, I think that the popular answer that you'll get is, well, it's somebody who was born with the brain of one sex and the body of, of another, right? And that's... Right. I think a lot of that has to do with the success of the gay rights movement and the born that way narrative that that became just very politically potent. There's no obvious reason why gay rights depends on people accepting that you have no choice but to have these feelings towards members of your of your own sex. No, but it just so happens to be the case exactly. that the vast majority of gay men say, this is my experience. And that is why many right. of us are very happy to give the benefit of the doubt to people who are trans who say, no, this is, this is really who I, who I am. You can't test it, you can't prove it, but it really is. And as such, now, obviously with gay kids, for example, who cares? Right. Um, let's not be cruel, abusive, let's prevent bullying, let, allow kids to explore themselves, and, it, and they'll sort it, sort it out. But once you bring in the question of medical intervention, then we change the paradigm altogether. That's um, right. And that's what we're dealing with here. Are we sure enough about gender identity that we would actually preempt or determine that decision in a human's life before they've even gone through puberty? That's the, that seems to me the critical thing. That's, that's right. That's right. And so I, I think there's kind of there's two types of people who are pushing back against if not the, the transgender movement in general, then at least the, the medicalization of minors. One type of person is the type who says there's no such thing as a transgender child, and there's actually not even such a thing as a transgender person. It's all just made up. It's just men and women who are confused about who they are. The other type of person, and I, I admit that I'm more in the second camp, the other type of person says something like, sex is real, it's binary, and it's immutable. However, some people do have this lasting, acute, experience of feeling alienated from their sex, from their body. And for a select number of those people, undergoing some form of body modification does provide a lot of relief and, and they can live better lives, fuller lives. And so if you accept the second position, then the question is narrower. Then the question becomes, is it possible to reliably pick out among all the kids who experience gender dysphoria is it possible to reliably pick out the ones who are destined to become adults who, who have a lifelong struggle? And I think the answer to that is no. I mean, maybe one day we'll have an MRI you know, that, can, that can tell us that, but I highly doubt that that's the case. And I think transgender activists will be the first to say there should be no MRIs. You should never, right? A trans kid should never have to prove that he's trans. That's what they're going to say. 
So yeah, so I, I, I think that the practical difficulty of coming up with a reliable diagnostic tool is leads to the exact same result in practice as the, what the first group is saying when they say there's no such thing as a transgender person or a transgender child. In practice, both of these types of, of critics agree that kids should not get medicalized, but they agree from very different premises. Right. And I am very much in the second camp as well, partly because, and this gets to sort of how much in some ways you believe nature, let's call it nature, has salience or, or value in the world, or whether it is arbitrary and that everything is, is constructed by humans on humans. And so for me, grappling with the question of homosexuality, for example, why on earth do homosexuals exist? It just strikes me mm -hmm. as a, it, when, when growing up, you're like, well, hi there. And when you learn about this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. andrewsullivan.substack.com, subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate, join the fun, subscribe. <laughs>